Well, beloved, before we turn to the reading of God's holy word, um, I was asked to give a, a brief update on uh, El Pacto de Gracia, the Spanish ministry in Chicago Heights. Uh, definitely this year, it goes without saying, uh, has presented its set of uh, challenges uh, to us and to our ministry. And so we do uh, covet your prayers. Uh, the place where we normally meet is the First Presbyterian Church of uh, Chicago Heights. But since the middle uh, to early March, uh, it has been closed to the public, uh, so we have not uh, been able to meet in our uh, normal uh, location if uh, you ever uh, so wanted to visit us and uh, wondering uh, why we're not there. Um, so, and then they experienced some damage on uh, August 10th because of El Derecho and the strong winds, uh, which damaged the roof of the fellowship hall. Uh, so we are currently worshiping uh, at the Opacto office near downtown Chicago Heights, uh, close to City Hall. And so we are, are there. If uh, you ever wanted more information or refer to others uh, who would like to join us for worship, we love personal referrals. Uh, one of the things that we've done this summer is offer an English class uh, through the Park District of Chicago Heights. It was supposed to be uh, in-person, face-to-face, but because of COVID, uh, it was virtual. So I videotaped a lot of English classes. Uh, I have offered English classes in the past uh, at Lansing at the Pass Office by First Church. I did offer an English class there uh, in the past years. Uh, but now we're going to be uh, advertising and we're going to be offering this face-to-face uh, -face in the Park District. So we do uh, covet your prayers and pray that uh, that would go well. Uh, at this point, uh, our members and our visitors uh, are healthy and uh, there hasn't been any cases that we uh, are aware of, uh, and so we're thankful to God for that. And uh, it's also, in this time, at our overseeing consistory at Faith URC uh, in Beecher, Illinois. That's the overseeing consistory of uh, El Pacto. Uh, since we are vacant without a pastor, I've been helping uh, in various ways there, uh, including high school catechism. So uh, we do covet your prayers for this busy uh, season in life, especially the beginning of the church year, the beginning of the school year. Uh, yeah, as you can imagine, I'm sure for your lives as well. Uh, so thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support. And we look forward to uh, visiting with you uh, after the service. So thank you once again, uh, dear ones. And now with that in mind, dear ones, we will turn to the reading of God's holy word. Uh, please turn with me to uh, Revelation uh, chapter 14. Verse 1 to verse 20 will be our scripture reading. Our sermon text will focus on verse 14 and verse 20. Uh, that will be our uh, scripture text. So the title of this sermon is The Grapes of God's Wrath. So please hear the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Revelation chapter 14, beginning at verse 1 until verse 20. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. 
and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair. He had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen. Fallen is Babylon the Great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast in his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Verse 14, our sermon text. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud. Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath, they were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and the blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Thus the reading of God's holy word will be blessed to our hearing this morning. Brothers and sisters and dear friends, during this time of year, we're accustomed to certain sights. 
The autumn months are about to begin. And actually, when I was looking it up on the calendar, uh, August, I'm sorry, September 22nd is when fall will officially begin. And the autumn months are associated with cooler weather. I'm sure most of us are already feeling that cooler weather. As well as the bright, warm, and brilliant colors that come with fall. It was a beautiful sight to see the changing of the seasons. In fact, this past week, I was uh, driving through uh, Iowa and Minnesota and Wisconsin. And when I was driving through Wisconsin the middle of this week, we could already see the changing of the leaves, the brilliant colors of red and orange and yellow. And also, this time of year not only means these beautiful, brilliant colors of fall, but it also means for those who work in the fields and those who work in the agricultural industry, that this is harvest time. It is a busy time of year to pick crops. And all those, all the cultivating, the planting, the watering, the caring of crops culminates in harvest time. And we know this is a very busy time of year for those who are farmers and in the agricultural industry. Now, when we think about the harvest of grapes, the harvest of grapes is celebrated in certain parts of the country. Harvest events occur in such places such as Napa Valley in Northern California, you know, where people come from all over the world just to enjoy the grapes and perhaps some wine. And you see people, you see tourists crushing grapes with their bare feet in wooden containers. Now, of course, farmers do not rely on tourists in order to achieve and accomplish this labor. Actually, they rely on wine presses to do the work for them. In today's passage, we learn about a different wine press, and we learn about a different cluster of grapes. Our passage is about a completely different kind of harvest, not the ones that we see in the fields, not the ones that we see as we're driving around in the country, but this is a spiritual kind of harvest. And actually, it's about two very different kinds of spiritual harvests on the last day. These two harvests represent two kinds of people, those that are believers and those that are unbelievers. The harvest of the earth, or grain, represent believers, and the harvest of grapes represent unbelievers. And in our passage, we learn about the eternal destiny of both of these groups on the last day, on the final day, on judgment day. And as we study our passage this morning, we will consider two points. First, the harvest of the earth and grain. And second, the harvest of grapes. So let's begin with our first point, the harvest of the earth or grain, focusing here on verses 14 to verse 16. Now, as we read the book of Revelation, we learn about the coming judgment. We learn about the final judgment and the events that lead up to it. And when we think about the final judgment, there are two simultaneous events that we consider. The blessing of believers and the judgment and condemnation of unbelievers. We also think about who has the authority to pronounce judgment, to proclaim judgment. Who will judge the living and the dead on that last day? Our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who will has that authority and that power to proclaim judgment. 
He will judge the living and the dead. And as we read here in Revelation 14, verse 14, it contains a great deal of symbolism as it describes this monumental event. Here we read, for example, in verse 14, I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Well, here, the son of man is a messianic title. It refers to the Messiah. It refers to Jesus. And this is not the first time in the book of Revelation that we learn about this title that's given to our Lord and our Savior. Earlier on, towards the very beginning of the book of Revelation, in Revelation 1, verse 13, we also see this title applied to our Lord Jesus. Now the question is, what does this title mean? Especially in this context, as well as in the broader context of redemptive history. Well, I want to highlight two biblical passages that shed light upon the meaning of this important title, in which we're using scripture to interpret other portions of scripture. First, I would like to draw your attention briefly to John chapter 5, verse 27. Here, during Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. This was his preferred title. And here we read in John 5.27 that the Father has given his Son authority to execute judgment because his Son is the Son of Man. So Jesus invokes this title to indicate his authority to pronounce and execute judgment. And for those who believe in Jesus, they are spared of this judgment. If we are in Christ, if we are found in Christ Jesus, then there is no fear of condemnation, no fear of the final judgment. We have passed from death to life, and believers will not be condemned by Christ. And so here in John 5.27, it makes a reference and a connection how Jesus has the authority as the Son of Man to proclaim judgment. And if we go to the Old Testament, to Daniel 7, uh, verses 13 to 14, it explains how the Son of Man receives dominion over all the kingdoms of the earth. So Jesus, the Son of Man, came from heaven to receive dominion, glory, and an eternal kingdom. Here I read a portion for you of Daniel 7, here in verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So as we read relevant passages of scripture in order to help us understand this important title attributed to our Lord, we see that it's not only judgment, but also his dominion over the kingdoms of the earth, and how Christ's kingdom is an eternal kingdom that will not pass away. Now, Jesus has the authority to judge the world since he sits on his heavenly throne. We see the vivid imagery here, which is emphasizing the fact that he is the king, about his royal authority. And here how it describes his throne, as him sitting on the cloud, his heavenly throne, here in verse 14. 
This is a reference to the throne of Christ. And in order to enhance this imagery of his authority and power and dominion, not only do we learn about his title, about his throne, but also about the crown on his head. This crown means that he has the authority of a king. The crown is a symbol for victory. Christ has more than conquered. And because we are in Christ, we ourselves are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And thereby he has won the right to judge. And in addition, we read about a sharp sickle, which is an indication that Jesus is ready for the harvest. The sickle is used for the grain harvest, and the grain harvest represents the gathering of believers, the gathering of those who belong to him, the gathering of the elect, the gathering of those who are members of Christ's church. The imagery of our passage is drawn from the minor uh, prophet in the Old Testament from Joel. In Joel chapter 3, verses 12 to 16, It also describes the sickle being used for the harvest, while the winepress is used for the crushing of grapes. So that is a parallel passage to the imagery that we're reading in Revelation 14. We look at Joel 3, we look at Revelation 14, and we see similar imagery that is speaking about this day of judgment and this great harvest that will take place. When Jesus returns for the second time, he will not only come to judge, he will also come to bless. And for those who believe in Jesus, Jesus is not our judge. But praise be to God, he is our Savior, who has come to bless us and to give us our full spiritual inheritance. Now, Revelation 14, verses 15 to 16 indicate that the time when the Lord will gather the members of his people in order to bless them. The time of harvest has arrived. Christ will come for the harvest of the earth, the harvest of grain. That is referring to believers. That is referring to God's elect. That is referring to God's people. The Messiah will come to gather his chosen for himself. And now to our second point, the harvest of grapes. And we're focusing our attention from verse 17 to verse 20. Beloved, as we focus on the harvest of grapes, grapes uh, in this particular passage, in this particular instance, is referring to the eternal destiny of unbelievers. In our passage, the harvest of grapes, in which grapes represent the people who do not believe in Christ. They represent those who have rejected Christ and rejected the gospel. When unbelievers receive their punishment, God will use his angels to administer his justice. These grapes will be the objects of God's wrath, the grapes of God's wrath. In Revelation 14, verses 17 and 18, God uses two angels The second angel communicates to the first angel about the punishment of unbelievers. And when the grapes are ripe, it is time to cut them with a sharp sickle. Now, what is the significance of ripeness? Ripeness is an image associated with judgment. The time is ripe. The time has come. The time of judgment has come. And the image of reaping is a common symbol for death and destruction. 
In order to understand the punishment of unbelievers, our passage compares the punishment of with grapes crushed in a wine press. In verse 19 and verse 20. Now, when the Jews make wine, they use a wine press, and obviously they're not the only ones that use wine press in order to make wine. But they put the grapes in the wine press, and what happens? The grapes are crushed. They're crushed. And what is the result of that process? The result of that process is that when the juice of the crushed grapes are crushed, what spills out is the juice, which looks like spilled blood. God will put unbelievers in his winepress. The treading of grapes was a familiar symbol of God's wrath upon his enemies. We not only learn this imagery here in Revelation 14, we also learn about this imagery also in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament prophets, in Isaiah. For example, Isaiah 63, verse 1 to 6. We also learn about judgment and the crushing of grapes using a winepress. Now the blood of unbelievers will come out of the winepress. And when the blood of unbelievers flows out, there will be so much blood that it will cover a distance of approximately 180 to 184 miles. And this is what that term is referring to, 1,600 stadia. If we convert that in terms of miles, approximately 180 to 184 miles. And the height of the blood will reach the horse's brittle. So it gives you an idea and a vivid imagery as far as the length of it, as well as the depth of it. The death of blood signifies the complete slaughter of an army in battle. A vivid imagery of victory. In other words, the crushing of unbelievers in the winepress will result in a lake of blood. God will repay his enemies for their wickedness by placing them in the winepress. Now, as we read the book of Revelation, we understand that there is a great deal of imagery that's borrowed from the Old Testament prophets. There is a great deal of symbolism. And so we must be very careful as we handle this portion of Scripture as far as how literally we need to interpret this. Now, this imagery is symbolic. It should not be taken literally. That unbelievers will be lined up and put in a wine press and crushed like grapes, and their blood will be spilled out, forming a humongous lake of blood. That is symbolic. There is no actual literal wine press, but the wine press is a symbol for the punishment of God's enemies. These agricultural examples would resonate in an agricultural community. These images would definitely be images that people could relate to in this particular culture, in this particular time and place. For those that work in the fields, for those that work with grapes, for those who make wine, for those that work with various harvests, when they hear this, it resonates with them. It connects with them because this is imagery that are so vivid in their day-to-day life and experience. It is amazing how our Lord communicates to us in such language that we're able to understand. 
and we read about the punishment and sinners in the Bible, our God is a just God in all of his ways, including in his judgments. God sees all the sins of the world. He knows all the transgressions of unbelievers. Perhaps some people may have the idea that, oh, this is a sin that I can commit in secret. No one will know about it. Or this is something that I'm doing, and no one is aware of it. And none is the wiser. But, beloved, since we know and firmly believe that God is all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, nothing can be hidden from his gaze. Nothing can be hidden from his sight. We all live before the face of God. And our sins are exposed. And according to his perfect timing, God will administer his justice with the help of his angels. According to verse 20, unbelievers will suffer outside the city. Where will this happen? Where will this judgment take place? Outside the city. And who are inside the city? The believers are inside the city. Inside the New Jerusalem. Unbelievers will not have the privilege of being inside the city of the New Jerusalem, but they will be outside the city. Only Christians, only believers, only God's elect and chosen will be inside the New Jerusalem with God and his angels. Beloved, some might think at this moment, will I be inside the city? Or am I outside the city? What is my standing before the Lord? Where do I stand in terms of my relationship with God? When I am faced with this question of eternity, about where I will spend eternity, about whether I will be inside the city or outside the city, of whether I will be blessed by God or crushed by God's judgment and the weight of that judgment, where do I stand with the Lord? Am I just going through, the, going through life not asking these ultimate questions, these questions of life and death, perhaps not caring about these questions. These are important questions, and truly they are ultimate questions, questions that we need to ask ourselves about our eternal future. We're not just focused about today. We're just focused about where we will be in eternity. And in order to know our eternal future, we must understand the gospel believe the gospel. And to help us to believe the gospel, we know that in our confessional, uh, in our confessions, for example, the Heidelberg Catechism, where we learn about our guilt and our grace and our gratitude, those are very important things for us to understand in order to understand God's plan of salvation, who we are as sinners, who God is, and his great salvation in Christ Jesus and how we are to live a life of gratitude, seeking godliness, pursuing godliness, pursuing holiness as a way to honor the Lord with grateful hearts for this great salvation that we have received by grace alone. So it's important, dear ones, as we ask ourselves these ultimate questions about who we are and our understanding of ourselves. We are sinners. Since we have a sinful nature, we do not have the need neither the ability nor the desire to obey God and glorify him perfectly in our daily lives. We have a sinful nature, and we want to satisfy our sinful desires. We are prone to believe Satan's lies. 
One of the chief lies of Satan is this, that there is more satisfaction in sin than in the Savior. What do we truly delight in and rejoice in? In sin or in the Savior? Where is our true treasure? That is where your heart is. And dear ones, when we look at ourselves as sinners, it is impossible for us to save ourselves from our sins. Are we able to force our way through the city gates? Are we able to force our way through heaven itself? No. We cannot force our way there. We cannot achieve salvation on our own. Not by our works, not by our merits. It is impossible. We cannot enter the New Jerusalem on the basis of our good works. Rather, we must be honest about ourselves and honest before the Lord and confess our saying, saying, Dear Lord, I am a sinner. I seek your mercy and I seek your forgiveness. I need your righteousness. And on that basis alone can I enter the city because if it's purely upon me and what I have done, I am unworthy, completely unworthy, dead in sin. We need to be raised to newness of life. And so, dear ones, we must be honest about who we are before the Lord and how our only hope is pleading for him for mercy and grace. And how does God save us? Well, before the foundations of the world, before we were even born, before our parents even met each other, God had already, God the Father had chosen us to be members of his kingdom. On the basis of his mercy and love and kindness, he chose us to be his own. Not because we are worthy in and of ourselves, but on the basis of his mercy, he chose us to be his own, God the Father. And God the Father sent his beloved son, Jesus, to fulfill all the requirements of our salvation, to fulfill all the requirements of the law. The law demands perfect obedience. But who of us can fulfill that requirement of perfect obedience, especially having a sinful nature? So it is for this reason that Jesus came to obey the law perfectly in our place. In his thoughts, in his words, in his action, Christ kept the law to the letter. And that perfect life of Christ is credited to our account. He gives us robes of righteousness. And when we stand before the Lord, we're covered in the righteousness of Christ. And he declares us righteous before his sight on the basis of what Christ has done for us. And not only does he clothe us with his righteousness, but he also washes us clean of all of our sins, of all of our transgressions. All the sins of the past, the sins that, of the present, the sins of the future, the sins we committed this morning, they're all washed away by the precious blood of the Lamb, who is the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah. And by his resurrection, he's conquered death itself and guaranteed for us our future glorious resurrection. We'll be dwelling in the new heavens and new earth and new creation and resurrected glorified bodies. No more sin, no more sickness, no more sadness. And before his ascension, Christ promised us his Holy Spirit. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
as we hear the good news of the gospel, the gospel of grace, the Holy Spirit, as we hear the preaching of the gospel proclaimed, is working faith and repentance in our hearts. And so praise God, this faith that we have is a gift from the Lord. This gift of repentance is from the Lord. And the Holy Spirit assures and testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. That trust that we have, that assurance that we have, that we belong to him, that assurance comes from the Spirit at work in our hearts so that we can truly cry out, Abba, Father, you are my Father. And as new creations in Christ, we reject the false gods, the false gospels, the vain philosophies, holding every thought captive to Christ Jesus our Lord. And as the recipients of such a great salvation, beloved, we realize that we not only want to care for ourselves and our family and our church family, but when we think about this vivid imagery about the wine press crushing these grapes, forming a lake of blood, a hundred, covering a distance of 180 to 80, 184 miles, it also makes us cry out and makes us want to share Dear Lord, have mercy upon the lost. Have mercy upon unbelievers. Whether those unbelievers are in my family, in my neighborhood, down the street, in my community, in my country, dear Lord, have mercy upon them. For I know, dear Lord, that I don't deserve this great spiritual inheritance. There's nothing that I have done that deserves me to be inside the city. I am not worthy to be a citizen, a heavenly citizen. But it's on the basis of your mercy that I am. And I want to see and I want to reach out and share the gospel and share this good news with everyone. The advancement of God's kingdom before the final judgment comes, before that day of reckoning comes, before that final day comes, let us strive to share the good news with our neighbor. Let us strive to share the good news with those who do not know about Christ and his gospel. To proclaim to them that there is good news, that for those that are in Christ, Jesus is our Savior, not our judge. But for those who reject this good news, Jesus certainly is the judge and has been given that authority as the Son of Man. And as we await Christ's return, we are thankful. We can find rest and peace that our eternal future is secure. That when Christ returns, we will receive a warm welcome into the new creation. And we will have a glorified, resurrected body. And we will see our Savior, our King, the Son of Man, on clouds of glory. Oh, dear Jesus, come quickly. Dear Jesus, come quickly. And as we await for his glorious return, may God give us the grace to share the good news of Christ with all those around us. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly and gracious Father, we thank you, Lord, 
that you chose us before creation itself to be your own, that you send your beloved Son, Jesus, to be our Savior. We thank you for his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and how we await his glorious return. And as we await, we rely upon the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to help us to grow in our faith, as well as to share our faith, as well as to give us that assurance that we belong to you. We thank you, dear Lord, for your word and how we pray for the advancement of your kingdom here in this place, here in this city, here in this community. And would you use us as your instruments to share the good news of Christ Jesus, our Savior, in whose precious name we pray. Amen.